Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Imagine you had tickets to a play, but you only managed to turn up in the second act. Now, obviously, your wife would be mad at you, okay? But you could argue you've turned up for the most important part. The second act is the time where most of the action happens. It's where the meat of the play tends to happen. And so things would make sense in themselves, and you'd be able to follow the story. And yet, you wouldn't quite have the full meaning of why everything was happening. You would know who the hero is, but you wouldn't know exactly why the hero was fighting for whatever they're fighting for. Now imagine you had to leave the play before the beginning of Act 3. Right? So now your wife's really mad at you. And now, not only would you not know the fullness of why Act 2 happened, but now you wouldn't even get to see the resolution. You wouldn't get to see how it all ends up. And I think the reason I'm saying that is that I think that's exactly a little bit how our telling of the Christmas story often happens. The message of Christmas, the incarnation, that is the central mystery of the Christian faith. Everything either leads up to it or proceeds from it. And yet, for most people who hear the story, it's almost almost as if they turned up in that middle act— and they kind of, kind of follow the plot line, but they leave before the ending. And so when we speak of the incarnation, we're talking about that act two of this great drama, and it's the incarnation, it's Jesus being born, and we're speaking of the fulfillment of everything that had happened in act one of this great play. And not only that, but the incredible part is that act three was inaugurated as Jesus was born and and lived and died and resurrected and ascended, he inaugurated this third and final act. But act three is still in the process of being written. It's being written and developed through our lives. And so what we're going to delve into this advent is what you might call the forgotten third act of Christmas. And it's not that we haven't heard of it, it's just that I think a lot of times we don't connect the fullness of what the incarnation actually means for our own lives. And so the theme we're going to pursue, and we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians together, is that Christmas is God's glory descending into the dirt. So that we, who are made of dirt, could ascend into the glory of God. And so our series is Of Dirt and Glory. So I want to welcome you again if you're here as a guest, if you're joining us online, and welcome our Mukunji campus that is live right now with us. So we're studying Ephesians over this month of Advent, and I know that Ephesians is not a typical Christmas text. It does not deal directly with the nativity or the biography of Jesus' life and birth. But what it does do maybe more than any other book of the Bible, is give us a God's eye view of everything the incarnation actually accomplished in the heavenly realms. And so, 
That's what we're going to be looking at. And I'm going to give you forewarning right now that you're going to struggle to believe some of the things that we're going to study in this book of Ephesians. Because it really reaches the highest point of the entire scripture about what it means to be a Christian. But by the same token, we're going to learn that if we don't hold fast to these truths, what happens is the power of the gospel begins to unravel. And this thing we call Christianity, it just becomes this kind of set of abstract principles. And nothing could be further from the truth. At the very center of our faith stands a living, breathing mystery. God became man. And so today our title is The Mystery of Christmas. And we're going to see that the story of salvation is a drama in three acts. A mystery that was concealed, a mystery that has been revealed, and a mystery that is to be received. Concealed, uh, revealed, and received. Okay, so we're going to begin by reading the first chapter, much of the first chapter of Ephesians together, starting in verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm going to pause there just before we move on to say that it's helpful to keep in mind, this is a little bit of a complicated passage, it's helpful to keep in mind as we read this, that this is a hymn, it's really a poem of praise. Right at the top of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And so, He begins by saying, bless God, because he's blessed us with all the blessings in the spiritual places. And then what he does is he goes on to list all of those blessings in the Trinity. So verse four begins the list. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul lists these massive, unimaginably immense blessings that are ours in the Trinity. If you noticed, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all clearly at work in that list. And so the center of it, the thing that it hinges on, is what Paul refers to as the mystery. The mystery that was set forth in Christ for the fullness of time. 
this mystery, it's one of the central themes in the book of Ephesians, but also in many other sections of Paul's writing. This is the mystery that Colossians and Ephesians 3 says was kept hidden for long ages and generations. And so that's Paul's way of referencing everything that happened in Act 1 of the great drama of salvation. The time when the mystery was concealed. Act 1 is about a mystery concealed. But in the earliest, probably what we think is the earliest letter that Paul wrote, which is the letter to the Galatians, this is what Paul says. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And so this is Paul's way of referencing everything that happened in Act 1. And it delves us into the story that we tell during the season of Advent. And so our first point here is that Advent retells the mystery that was hidden for generations. So Advent, it's a word that means coming. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of expectation. It's a season of pregnancy, of hopefully waiting for what's to come. But it's also longing for this day of fulfillment. And so that one word of Advent, it contains this whole history of the people of God who for centuries, for millennia, were kept somewhat in the dark, waiting, hoping, expecting for what? For the resolution to a dilemma. What am I talking about? Well, open scene one. We find ourselves in paradise as many plays begin. And God has made the creation, the whole universe, as a temple to his glory. And standing right in the middle of the temple, as an ancient temple would have, is the image of the God, which is humanity. And humanity is given a vocation. They're charged with stewarding and cultivating the creation on behalf of the creator. And there's this perfect unity, this perfect harmony between God and man. And you know, it doesn't last very long. Humanity is incited to rebel against God, and so they come under the power of sin. They're actually enslaved to sin. And God promises that as a result will come death, will come judgment. And so we see that the humans lose their glory. They lose everything that they had had in paradise, and everything very quickly begins to disintegrate. But... Right in the midst of that moment, God plants a seed of hope. God is not content to let his images and the creation self-destruct. And so he promises, even in the midst of declaring the judgment that's going to come, he declares that there will be one who will come and reverse the destruction and set humanity free and restore the unity that we first had between God and man. And so as Act 1 proceeds, we see that God sets apart a man, Abraham, where everything had gone wrong by breaching this trust and faith with God. Well, now God begins to put it right through a man who chooses to trust God and have faith in God. And that man proceeds into a family, who proceeds into a tribe, into a people, into a nation, into a kingdom all with the design of bringing about this this promised salvation. And yet, 
you read this this storyline of Act 1 and you see how one after the other, each of these things unraveled. You see one after one how none of them could restore this unity with God and redeem humanity from the mess that we'd gotten ourselves into. And so act one, as the curtains close, we're left with this terrible dilemma. And it's this. How can God both judge evil and save his people? When his people, the ones that he'd set apart to to bring about redemption, had actually fallen into evil themselves, just like all the other nations. And so God is placed in this this dilemma of sorts. He's promised judgment and death as a result of sin, and yet he's promised salvation and mercy as a result of his hope. How can he destroy evil without destroying the very people that he's set apart? And the curtains close. But now we open up in Act 2. And what we see is a baby lying in a manger, a baby who is both God and man. And we find out that the great mystery that generations had awaited for was that God was not just sending another prophet, another priest, another king, but God himself would do it. The word, the eternal son of God would take on flesh and as the message translation says, move into the neighborhood. And what that meant was as true God, he had the power to actually redeem us. He had the power to do what humanity could not do for itself. And yet as true man, he also had the power to represent us because he was one of us. And so this was the mystery. No one saw this coming. And yet as we look back, we see that the clues were there all along. But now, Paul says, in the fullness of time, in other words, when the time was ripe, the mystery of God's plan was finally revealed. And we see that the incarnation of the Son of God was the secret key of God's plan to reunite the creation with the Creator. And so what we see is, Act 2, Christmas reveals the mystery of the incarnation. And so in act one, it was a mystery of hiddenness. The question was, how is God going to do this? How is he going to solve this dilemma? But in act two, we have a different kind of mystery. It's no longer how is God going to do it, but it's, actually, it's wrestling with how God did do it. It's no longer a mystery of hiddenness. It's a mystery of revelation. How do we make sense of what he's done? And here's the thing, at the very center of Christian faith stands this mystery that you can sum up in three words, the most consequential words ever spoken in human history, God became man. And so this is what C.S. Lewis called the grand mystery, because without the incarnation, there's no cross, there's no resurrection, there's no ascension, There's no salvation. There is no gospel. And yet it's so utterly mysterious to us because we can't wrap our heads around what God has revealed to us. How can this possibly be true? How can Jesus be both man 
and God? How can the creator and sustainer of the universe also be a helpless baby? And so there's this mystery. And yet, if we don't maintain this mystery, what you find out is the whole thing unravels. And what I mean is this. So when you study history of heresy throughout the Christian church and throughout the Christian world today, all the major heresies that have come out of the Christian church are to do with the mystery of the incarnation. And the thing with heresies, no one really sets out to become a heretic. It's not really how it works. They're not usually attempts to deny the mystery of the incarnation. What they really are, they they arise out of attempts to solve the mystery of the incarnation, to make it more comprehensible. All right, so a mystery, when we're talking about a mystery, theologically speaking, what we're talking about is something so vast that it can't be grasped by the human mind. And so I'm not saying that mystery is opposed to reason. Christian faith is nothing less than rational, but it is more. It does transcend reason. In the same way, and here's a picture that helps me anyway, Christian faith is not less than rational. It goes beyond what's rational. In the same way, think about it like this, the same way that a cube, which is three-dimensional, it contains squares, which are two-dimensional, and lines, which are one-dimensional, right? It contains those things, and yet it goes beyond them. So you can describe a square in terms of lines. You can describe a cube in terms of squares, but you can't go the other way around. The higher dimension contains the lower dimensions. Yeah? And so it contains them, but it does go beyond them. And so if you think about that, there's actually a great story to illustrate that called, oh, I'm blanking out on it now, but it, Abbott, Flatland, it's called Flatland. And it's about the visit of a 3D object into a 2D world. Well, the only way you could describe it is in 2D language, because that's the only language that people in Flatland can understand. And so that's what we have in the incarnation. We have a higher dimension entering our lower dimension and everything in our lower dimension is contained within it and yet it goes beyond it. It goes beyond what we can simply contain within our lower dimensions. And so the only way to rationally grasp a mystery like that is to reduce it. But anything smaller than the full picture is only part of the picture. And if you only focus on that part of the picture, then you don't have the whole truth. It becomes a reduction, a reductionism. And so, in the attempt to solve the incarnation in that way, what happens is all the major heresies of Christianity, they either end up denying the full divinity of Jesus, or they end up denying the full humanity of Jesus. That's what you find out. That's where they end up leading. How come? Well, you absolutely need both of those things. If you deny one or the other, you actually end up with no gospel at all. Why? Because if he's not God, then he doesn't have the power to do anything. He doesn't have the power to actually save us. And yet if he's not man, then his accomplishments have nothing to do with us. 
And so for this good news to be actually good news to us, Jesus must be what the creed says, very God of very God, and also the incarnate human born of a virgin. And so how both of those things can be true at the same time is very much a mystery. And yet, if we try and reduce it to fit it in our heads and completely grasp it, we end up completely getting rid of the power of the gospel. And so what you find out is heresy solves the mystery, but orthodoxy, right belief, maintains the mystery. And so there was a lead up, there was a mystery in the lead up to the incarnation in Act 1, and there's an irreducible mystery in the fact of the incarnation in Act 2, but here's the thing, and this is what we want to get into in our series here, is that it doesn't stop there. There's also a mystery in the consequences of the incarnation for us. What are we talking about? Well, it's no longer a mystery that is concealed. It's no longer just a mystery that's been revealed. Now it's a mystery to be received. What do I mean? Well, you can put it this way. The mystery of Act 1 was a mystery between, a dilemma between two promises. All right? The mystery of Act 2 is between the two natures of Christ. And the mystery of Act 3 is between the two realms that the Christian inhabits. The two realms of the Christian life. And we're going to see, I'm going to get into detail with this. In Act 2, Christ enters humanity. He takes on the dirt of humanity. He takes on everything that belongs to us. He takes our sin. And so when Jesus dies, sin dies with him. But in Act 3, what we find out is that all of that was so that those who are in Christ could take on glory, could take on everything that is true of him. He took on everything that was true of us so that we could take on everything that was true of him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created, but he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. And so, The point is this, that the mystery of Christian life is that we are now in Christ. The mystery of Christian life is that if you're a Christian, you are now in Christ. And what Paul wants to tell us in this passage is that if we can receive this mystery, it will utterly transform everything about our lives. And we've read that Paul says those who are in Christ, they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I want you to notice what's going on grammatically in that opening statement. He says, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so he's talking about the third heaven, he's, he's talking about the dwelling place of God. And you, and you can ask, well, how is it that I have already received something in a place where I've never been? 
how can Paul already be talking in the, in the perfect tense, the past tense, if I've never been in God's presence yet in, in heaven? Well, here's how Paul answers that for himself. In Galatians 2.20, he famously says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if that's true, we're going, there's really not much of a deeper topic I could get into this morning, guys. This is like, this is as deep as it gets, all right? If that's true, if your old man, if my old man is dead and Christ is alive in me, well, then it follows that everything that's happened to him in the resurrection and the ascension has also happened to me. And you say, Ian, that sounds like heresy. I'm really just reading the Bible to you. It's right there. We just struggle to conceive of it because it's so mysterious. How can these things be so? Well, I want to read to you, all right, if everything that's happened to Jesus after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, if everything that's happened to him has also happened to those who are in him, well, let me read you exactly what has happened to him. We're going to carry on in the next part of the chapter. So the end of chapter one into chapter two of Ephesians. And this is what Paul says about what's happened to Christ. God, he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter two, and when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. And then these two wonderful words, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And listen to this. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. When he resurrected, we resurrected. When he ascended, we ascended. When he was sat down at the right hand of the Father, Paul says right here, I'm not, I'm not making this up, it's right here. We were seated with him at the right hand of the Father. This is the, this, that statement right there is the highest height of what the entire scripture tells us about what it means to be a Christian. If you're in Christ, what is true of him is true of you. And so it's almost impossible for me to exaggerate the immensity of what that means. I don't know if you noticed. Did you realize what scripture just said? 
All right? Colossians says this, okay? In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, here, Paul says, the church is where the fullness of Christ is pleased to dwell. The church is his body. And again, we encounter a mystery. How does this hold together? Well, doesn't Jesus still have his body? And the answer is yes. Jesus still possesses his heavenly body. How else could he be seated in heavenly places? So if Jesus still has his body and Paul says that we're the body, well, is this just a metaphor? I think a lot of times that's what we think it is. It's just a metaphor. But let's not be so quick to try and solve the mystery. Because scripture doesn't talk about it as a metaphor. It states it as a truth. And if we reduce it to a metaphor, what happens is we're in danger of missing something fundamental. So here's what we know. Here's what scripture tells us. We know that Christ has a physical glorified body. And it also tells us that the church is his mystical body. And they're one flesh, and yet they're not the same thing. Simple, right? (laughs) So Paul goes on to explain a little bit more in chapter 5 of Ephesians. He says, we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote out of Genesis. And Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So sometimes we think of, you know, Christ and the church as a metaphor for marriage. Well, Paul says it's actually the other way around. The truer reality is the marriage between Christ and his church. And and human marriage is just a metaphor. It's a reflection of that. Well, he's saying Christ and the church are one body. They're one flesh in the same way that a husband and wife form one flesh. Well, how is it that a husband and wife form one flesh? How can they be one body and yet still two bodies? We're encountering a mystery here. Paul says it's a profound mystery. But here's, I think, what scripture teaches us, that when two people are joined in marriage, what happens is together they form a new body, a spiritual body, if you will. A spiritual body is created out of the coming together of the two without them ceasing to be individuals. This is really heady stuff, but here's the thing. When two people are joined in marriage, they remain individuals, and yet neither of them can do something without affecting the other. There's there's now a mystical, a spiritual body that's created out of the two coming together. So this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, like I said, you can find this all through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you know that that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And listen to this. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so Paul's saying, here's the mystery of Act 3, is that as a Christian, you simultaneously inhabit Two realms. 
You simultaneously inhabit the earth and the fleshly realm. You're still in your physical, unredeemed body, and yet your spirit is seated in heavenly places with Christ. Your spirit is as redeemed as it ever will be. It's as redeemed as the people who are enjoying the presence of Christ right now. But our bodies are still awaiting that full redemption. And we live in the tension between these two things. And Advent, really, it reminds us every year that we're living. We're not living just in light of Jesus' coming. We're also living with the expectation of his second coming. We're living in the tension between the already and the not yet. And so the final point here, the thing that we're going to be going into as we explore this book of Ephesians through the rest of Advent is this. The mystery of our inheritance is something to receive. It's something to receive. So immediately after his hymn of praise in those first, that first long section, Paul goes on to say this. He goes on to say that he's desperate for the church to receive the truth of this mystery. So remember, he, he, well, I'll read it. He says, Paul's prayer is this, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened for three things. That you would know the hope to which he's called you, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and thirdly, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he's not speaking to unbelievers here. He's speaking to Christians, right? He's speaking to people for whom all this is true, and yet Paul's saying it's possible for you to be in Christ and not know this. This is a mystery to be received as you live out the Christian life. Paul's saying, thank God for the fulfillment of act one in act two with the incarnation, but don't miss the third act. Don't leave before the end of this great drama. And if you have, he's saying you need to be enlightened to the hope that you're actually called to. You need to be enlightened to the riches that actually belong to you in your inheritance and the immeasurable power of God that belongs to you. This is the inheritance that belongs to us and which has been sealed for us and guaranteed, but which we don't yet possess. So it's ours, it belongs to us, and yet we haven't yet come into possessing it. So what difference does all this make in your life? And in a sense, we're going to be looking into that the whole rest of the series. This is kind of an introduction, scratching the surface of this incredible mystery What difference does it make to know your inheritance, the one that Paul's talking about? And I think there's an image, there's an analogy that we can draw. Imagine you were in court, you're in debtor's court for a debt that is so massive you could never possibly hope to pay it in a hundred lifetimes. And you're in court and all of a sudden you find out your debt's been forgiven. It's been cleared. Okay? Your student debt has been wiped away. (laughs) Controversial, sorry. You find out that your debt's been forgiven. Incredible, right? What a joy, what a weight off your shoulders. You no longer have this crushing weight of this debt that you could never hope to pay. But then imagine 
not only has your debt been forgiven, but you actually leave the courtroom and they tell you, just so you know, it's not only that your debt's been forgiven, you're actually, we found out that you're actually an heir to this unimaginable inheritance, this fortune that you could never spend in a hundred lifetimes. It belongs to you. It's yours. It's sealed. It's guaranteed. But for right now, it's held in trust until you're ready to manage it. Okay? Because clearly, you don't know how to manage your money. (laughs) So imagine that, okay? If that's you coming out of that courtroom and you're forgiven and then you're told this news, well, what if you had just stopped at the forgiveness? Well, you might have left the courtroom feeling completely, you know, free from debt, but you're still poor. You still have got nothing to your name. And so you're kind of starting from the bottom again. And, and as you work your way, you know, to get ahead, you might be forgiven from that debt, but you might live your life totally consumed with worry about how you're going to make a living. Of, of how you're going to continue on. And as you work your way up and you get a little bit and you start saving, well, then you might also be really consumed with how you're going to protect the little that you have. And you might be obsessed with people who you think are a threat who are going to take it away from you. And so, in other words, you, you might be forgiven from your debt, but you could come out of that courtroom with just as much of a poverty mindset. But what if you knew that you were an heir to an unimaginable fortune? Wouldn't that change your entire outlook on life? Wouldn't that change your entire approach? You could now, leaving that courtroom, you could have a wealthy mindset. Because you know, you don't have to worry about your future. It's secure, right? You don't have to worry about your riches being taken away. They're held in trust. They're guaranteed. They're secure. You don't have to worry about other people taking it away because it belongs to you. It's already yours. I think it would give you a sense of hope It would give you a sense of the riches that belong to you. It would give you a sense of power, you might say. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul's talking about. And he's saying, Ephesians, you are forgiven. You know you're forgiven, but you don't yet know that you are heirs to the fortunes of Christ. And you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be, you know, joyful at the foot of the cross, but don't stay there. He's done that all so that not only could you, be, could you be forgiven for your debt, but that he could actually give you his riches. And right now he is shaping you into the kind of person who can manage it and manage his kingdom for all eternity. Wow. Wow. If that were true of you, and yet you didn't live like that? You know, if you came out of that courtroom and said, someone said, you, you're, you know, you're the heir to this massive fortune, and yet you went on to live like a pauper, to live out of a poverty mindset, 
it, what would that show? It would show you're, you're, you're not living in the reality of that truth. You haven't actually received that truth and believed that it's true for you. Otherwise, it makes no sense to live that way, right? And so, oh man, there's good news for someone listening here today. <laughs> and it's good news. First of all, there's someone here and there's someone listening, I, I, I know, just statistically, okay? There's somebody here that you, you don't yet know that your debt's been paid. You're still on your way to that courtroom thinking that you're going to get set down for life. But when you get there, Jesus is there and he said, I paid it. It's done. It's covered. Don't worry about it. Okay? And so, if that's you, you have an opportunity to accept the forgiveness, the freedom that only Jesus can give you. But once you have, and if you're here and you already have, then I want to tell you there's more to that good news. He didn't forgive us just to leave us there. And and here's what I want to tell you. In the light of everything that Paul has told us in this passage, Christian, if you're in Christ, I'm telling you right now, you're seated in heavenly places. You are not beholden to Satan and the power of sin at all anymore. Not even a little bit. It has no power over you. It only has the power that we give it. He actually, Satan has no authority over the Christian. Why? Because we are seated in heavenly places with Christ who is far above all rulers, all principalities, Not only in this age, but in the age to come, Paul says. So we're not to live this quiet little defeated life. No, we have the authority of the king of kings. Christian, you are lacking in nothing. In Christ, all things have been placed under your feet. So what that means is anywhere that you tread is actually part of your dominion in Christ. And yet, for a little while, we're still in the battle. But Paul says, our inheritance is coming. It is sealed. It's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. As surely as Christ lives, the risen Christ lives, we too shall live. That's his promise to us in the book of John. And so I want to end here by reading to you the, the, the words of the carol that we actually sang here in Bethlehem at the start of the service. And as I do, I'll invite the musicians back up and we'll close with a song. I, I so love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The, the, the words are just, they are the gospel. And I, I didn't recognize, I, ha, I don't think I've sung before, that, that fourth chorus that we sang today that was just mind-blowing. Jesus as the second Adam, restoring the image of God in man. And we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. But listen to this. This is why the Herald Angels Sing. This is why they sing glory to the newborn king and peace on earth and mercy mild because God and sinners are reconciled. And so we say, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, life and light to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And this is our, our, the heart of our passage today is this. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die.
born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter this Advent season, would you prepare our hearts? Jesus, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts? Lord, for anyone who has not yet received your forgiveness of their debt. Lord, show them right now that they can come to you, that they're forgiven, they're set free from that debt. Lord, for all of us who have received your forgiveness and we're in you, Lord, help us to see the immensity of the truth of what we've just read. That not only are we forgiven our debt, but we're given your inheritance your riches. Lord, let that seep into our hearts that we no longer live out of a a mentality of lack, of poverty, of emptiness, Lord, but we would operate out of your riches, out of your treasure, out of your power. Come and transform our hearts, Lord Jesus. Lord, we give all these things to you. We entrust this mystery to you, Lord. We receive it. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.